I moved to Portland, Oregon in 2009. I was 21. And at that time, I had been a vegetarian for about a year. It was exciting for me that my new home was a place where people cared about their health. They cared about taking care of creation. You guys may know that about Portland already. They're into health stuff. They do naturey things, and you may also have heard they like to keep it weird. So one day, I walked to one of the street markets a few blocks from my house, and I came upon this veganism booth, and I decided to stop in. I was happy to talk to the guy there and was excited to tell him I'm already a vegetarian, we're on the same team. I was surprised to find that, newsflash, he did not think we were on the same team. My eating eggs and cheese was a real block for him, even a moral dilemma. He gave me arguments and he gave me brochures and when I left the booth, I left a little bit stunned. And to be honest, I rethought my position after our encounter. Suddenly, I wasn't just asking questions about what's healthiest for me. I was asking, what's best for other people? Was I eating sustainably? And would it really be better for everyone if I became a vegan? I left the encounter asking different questions. Believe it or not. In today's passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, this is one in which the Apostle Paul is asking those same questions. If you were listening closely to the 1 Corinthians reading, you will have heard Paul is actually putting on the table the idea of never eating any meat again. And before you tune me out, here's why. When Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, eating meat that has been offered to idols has become a really big question for the, the Christians in Corinth. This dilemma of eating meat offered to idols seems far off for us, but was probably a daily issue for people living in cities like Corinth. From our reading of 1 Corinthians, it seems that there are two sides to this argument, the pro side being there is only one real God, so why be offended that this meat is offered to a God that's not even real? And the against position being, we used to worship that false God, and this feels wrong. For people buying meat at the market, there's probably not a clear-cut way to know if it's previously been offered to an idol. But of course, that's not really a problem for the poorer Corinthian Christians they probably don't have money to buy much meat. And then there's the issue of offering meat that's served in actual temples. What we learn from scholars is that they were often dining rooms within the temples of the gods people worshipped. And wealthier people would have regular, regularly been invited to normal social functions there. Parties and celebrations would not only have served meat that had been offered to idols, but these parties were held in the temples of those false gods. Of course, for poorer people, these are probably parties they're not invited to. So you can imagine how scandalizing it is when another Christian chooses to go. What we're saying is this may have mostly been a problem for people with privilege. 
And if that's the case, we might be able to compare this problem to our first world problems. You know what we call first world problems. Things like being on a wait list for a library book, i.e. a free book from a conveniently located public library. Or worrying about the level of our phone charge. Can I really finish that podcast before we get home or is it going to die? And of course, the rage we all feel at our office printers. First world problems. They're money problems. In Corinth, this idol meat issue is one of the problems that especially people with some money might face. So it's possible that the weak Christians referred to in the passage are not just the believers with overactive consciences who always feel guilty about everything, but poorer Christians scandalized by richer Christians whose socioeconomic status has brought them challenges to discern that poorer working Christians simply have not faced. Wealthy, privileged Christians and poor, scandalized Christians divided. The church in Corinth is truly a divided church and probably needs to come and take Katie Bradford's elective conflict resolution class because idle meat is one of several things that is threatening their unity. They're divided on eating practices, as we see here, but they also can't choose which of their leaders is most important, Paul or Apollos. Their worship services are, get this, Presbyterians, disordered. And they're also suing each other in court. Did I mention, their sexual ethics are MIA. So if you are looking for some interesting Sunday afternoon reading, 1 Corinthians is your book. Their church is what you might call a hot mess. And that's why Paul writes this church a letter, which is our book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter in which Paul contrasts the stereotypes people have taken for granted. Like what is wise? What is foolish? Who is wise and foolish? Is it wise to follow Christ or is it foolish? Who is weak? Who is strong? What is permissible and what is beneficial? Paul masterfully contrasts these common tensions throughout the letter, and Paul meets the questions that they've been asking. To eat sacrificed meat or not to eat sacrificed meat? That is the question. If there are any vegan Christians in Corinth, the question is not applicable. But for anyone else who is actually faced with this choice, this is going to be a daily decision that is an outworking of their understanding of grace and love. So understandably, they want to know, what does God say? Yes or no? I follow Christ now. So how much of the world's culture can I participate in before it's too much? Or as my parents' generation would say, can I drink, can I chew, can I go with girls who do? (laughs) Recently and for many years, Christianity did quite a bang-up job of going way above and beyond the Ten Commandments and outlawing all sorts of behaviors. People would know that we are Christians by all the things we said no to. So many wonderful things were put just out of reach 
And sometimes that's called for. Some things even today merit a clear yes or no. But for those gray areas, it seems that time has taught us as Christians that we ought not to be so quick to always jump to yes or no. In fact, the answer that Paul gives the church he writes to is so much less and more than just a yes or no for gray areas. Instead of yes and no, he gives them new questions to ask. In effect, what he says to this church is, forget what you think you know and learn to ask yourself questions. Stop asking me what you can get away with. And in the presence of God, ask yourself these big questions. Are you free enough to eat that meat? If you are, are you also free enough to say no? Are you free to say no to social pressure? No to your own privilege? Or are you now so secure in Christ that you don't even have to ask how free you are anymore? Are you now so free that you can ask how to love your neighbor as yourself? Beyond the can I question, or or even should I question, as one of my old professors used to say, it's easy for us Christians to get too shoddy. There is a better question. Knowledge puffs up, he says. Love builds up. So the question becomes, what is the law of love asking of me right now? And this much better question helps to clarify my basic orientation. Am I basically oriented to myself and what I consider to be my rights? Or am I oriented to the demands of love? This question about love is much better because it's otherwise too easy to make this seem like this is really an issue concerning the body rather than an attitude of my heart. Too easy to make it about meat or animal products or alcohol or what we say yes and no to rather than who. Paul is incredibly good at understanding what goes on in the depths of a human. It's true. He zaps right to the core of the issue. Paul is also exceptionally good at being intense and the kind of guy who could ruin a lot of dinner parties. But most importantly, he is quite gifted at seeing the big picture of God's motivating love in our lives. Love is the why in every decision. Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth that they are not friends. They are family, and they ought to take that seriously. He says, love the brother or sister next to you as much as you love yourself for the love of God. We ought always to say yes, yes to the love of God and neighbor. In our Logo 6th grade Bible study last fall, our big theme was what does it mean to be a servant leader, someone who leads like Jesus? And one of the ideas we came back to a few times is this. What you need is more important than what I want. And we use this little sign. What you need is more important 
than what I want. Your needs are more important. If I'm going to be like Jesus, I will put your needs before my wants. Paul says to Corinth, it is the strong and privileged who need to ask whether or not some of our wants and some of our freedoms that we hold so tightly have become idols in themselves. Freedoms that we have 100%, no doubt, but that we ought sometimes to lay down for the sake of the vulnerable. Their needs before our wants. Our second reading today from Galatians 5 says it this way, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become enslaved to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of love. A law that says a great many things are permissible, but not everything benefits and builds up. The meat eating is optional. The love of the person next to you is imperative. That relationship comes first. It is important, and Paul does not seem to be arguing this, it is important that we experience the joys of the great freedom we have. Paul also seems to say there is no need to worry whether or not we are going to misuse this freedom if we have this basic orientation centered on love, which can meet the demands of the moment and follow the lead of love in every decision. Or put another way, the law of love helps us to follow the Spirit wherever the Spirit's wind blows. Today's text is inviting us to this wild adventure of discerning the way of love in our lives. What is the law of love asking of me? See if you agree with this, but I'm just going to say it. One of the gifts of being alive is having spouses and children and church people and neighbors who mess with you who destroy your stereotypes because they are the ones who teach us how to do the messy, time-consuming, and discerning work of loving our neighbors. If it seems like hard work, we should probably cheer up and know this is all as it should be. That's why those people are there. So how free are we to be? Well, that depends. How free was Christ, whom we follow, the one who could boast the riches of God the Father and yet sacrificed every right he had in order that some may be saved? How free are the grace and love we have received? Grace without limits, yet love that limits itself to our level. Can we embrace the law of that kind of love? Can we love like Christ, who ate with sinners where they were and yet gave up all of his rights for us so we might believe? As we close, we remember that 1 Corinthians, this epic book, also holds the very famous and epic chapter 13, 
the one that tells us about true love, which is not proud and is not self-seeking. If we know it all but don't operate from a center of love, it says we have, we are, nothing. Which teaches us that love is not only the base of our spirituality, it is also the highest height. Even knowledge, Paul will go on to say, has an expiration date. But of the things that will remain, the greatest is love. May we give love our greatest attention.